Um, it's podcasting time. Yeah. So what have you been working on this week? Um, I have been doing some design work. You know, that's what developers do, right? So, um, doing some design work for a new project. And um, so I've been spending a lot of time in Sketch. And I found out this pretty awesome feature. It's called prototyping. And I don't know when it came out, but um, I watched like the release video sometime in the last month or two. But um, I actually just discovered it from the interface, which is pretty awesome. Um, like the whole, we talk about progressive disclosure sometimes. So, so you open the app and you, you what, you saw like a new button or something? Exactly. Um, it was in the header. It was like yellow, so it kind of stood out. Um, and it just said link. And then it said something like cloud or view online. And I thought maybe they had built some sort of like post my artboards to an Envision like website and just share them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, cool. They built something like that. But it's more than that. So it is that. It's like a cloud version of your sketch document. The feature is called prototyping, and it's a cloud version of your sketch document that you can share, you can invite people to, or you can just get an anonymous link. And anyone who has the link can just open up the website and see your sketch document. But there's another part of it, which is the prototyping part, which is links. So what you can do is you click on any element in your interface design, and you can press W, and you can just click to another artboard. So if you remember at TED, like we use Envision to make these kinds of things where first you would export, you would install an Envision plugin into Sketch. You would press a button to sync it all up to an Envision project. Then you'd open up Envision and you would link, you would draw hotspots around nav links in the header and link to different artboards and all this stuff. So how is this? Why, why is this so much more exciting than that? Well, first of all, it's just because you're, you're right there in Sketch. And so... The first thing is that you literally are just working and you're like, oh, there's a link to this thing. You press W, link to your other artboard, it's done. So you're, it's just, you don't break the train. You don't, you don't interrupt your flow. There's not two tools. Not two tools. Um, second thing that's cool is that it all works across symbols in Sketch. And so for folks who don't know, symbols in Sketch are reusable bits. They're kind of like Ember components. I was going to say, what a, <laughs> reusable bits, what does that sound like? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's the best way. I don't, I don't know Sketch that well, and that's exactly how I think of symbols. They're right. components. Right. So if you were making a, a nav header inside of your Ember app, you would have link twos in there, right? You would put links, and you would just have this header nav link to this other part of your app, this other route. So it basically works the same way. So Sketch has replaced... Ember components and Ember link twos. And Envision. And Envision. But no, I'm just thinking <laughs> yeah. about this from an Ember developer. Yes. They've they've replaced link twos and they've replaced components. Exactly. So so how long, maybe in a few more years, I'll be able to build my whole Ember app with just using Sketch? So that was my thought. So right, just to finish the thought, the, the symbols in Sketch are like components. So what I was doing was I was making a header for this app and I was linking, you know, um, roster to the roster page, members to the members page. And then what I did was I took the header and I created a symbol from it and all the links remained intact. Sketch organizes its things as across art, across artboards, across pages. And when you make a symbol, it extracts it out into a new page. But when I went to that completely separate page, I saw little yellow lines indicating the links were preserved. Then I started reusing that symbol in all my different artboards and I clicked preview, which pulled up the prototype and all the links still worked. So that was really cool. Um, I feel I, I, I'm I'm having a little trouble following just just because yeah, not that familiar with Sketch. So I'm hearing a lot of like uh, symbols, artboards, right. pages, pages. Like I'm not I don't I, I don't have a mental map for these things. A page, um, yeah. I guess the idea with organization is that a page would be like um, the checkout page, and then in that page you'd have all the states that that page can be in. So like, you know empty form, valid credit card, you would build all the different states of that page in different artboards. So okay, I was so, working so art, on... Artboards are like mock-ups of the various states of my pages? Exactly. I but see. it's pretty flexible. So I was just using one page grouping to make a bunch of different artboards for all the different routes of the app. 
Point being that the links were preserved as I was kind of reorganizing things and extracting them into symbols, which was really cool. Like I just didn't know if that was gonna work. Cause like in, in Vision, when you do those hot spots and then you add links to them, it ends up being brittle because you change the designs a lot. The really cool thing about this is that it's linked to the actual yeah, isn't isn't there a way in like uh, HTML you can do like a link map where you you say like this part of of this HTML object like this image is a link, huh? So you can draw like coordinates around it. I, oh. think, I think you. So when I think of the Envision model, that's but what they I think just have of. pictures. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can do this. So yeah. I like way <laughs> back when you could design websites where you upload a whole image and uh, you just make little hot spots on that image. So if that part moves of the if that part moves, you're, you got to update the, the map. So. Sounds painful. Yes, and that's what the Envision thing is reminding me of. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, it's really cool. It's really fast. Literally just W. I'm linking all over the place like a maniac. And then I'm clicking preview, sending a link of this thing to the client, and they're clicking through it. And it's almost, I mean, I was showing you it and you were kind of like, is that the app? Like, there was a second where you actually thought I was yeah. navigating the real application. Yeah, it looks just like a real app. Because I'm just clicking around, there's active states and everything, and it didn't take me that long. And it's kind of like, I'm sitting there using this thing and I'm like, I don't ever want to write code again. Like, this is how I want to build this stuff. I think it 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 maps the the it maps really well to like how you're thinking. Right, so you're 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 thinking, what is this app going to look like? Yeah, and you prototype something. You're not thinking about the server. You're not right. thinking about validation. Right. Um, so yeah, I think like these tools are awesome. Yeah. The other thing I thought was like, so this is an extension of a project we worked on last year, and that project is being used right now. And that project has a bunch of components in it. You know, buttons in different states, tables. And of course, you know, when we start out and sketch and then we end up building it, the thing in Ember, you know, the Ember components are at this point the source of truth for the app, right? They're what's yep. being rendered. So anything that was in sketch in an old version of the document is out of sync. Um, and we like using sketch for like fast prototyping, but then we're, we're quick in Ember as well. Since we both know Ember, we just like to get into the code there pretty quickly. But I was just thinking like, what if there was a way where, and I know React has a tool like this where you can, you can, have your React components render to Sketch. I've always wished it was the other way where you have your Sketch file as the master and somehow that's the tool where you start and that gives you like auto-generated components in your app. Now, now with this, are you thinking, you know, like Ember developers are going to get started, they're going to start writing code, they're going to create a bunch of actions, basically going to do a bunch of JavaScript-y stuff. Does that like end up back in Sketch in, in this tool that you're imagining? Yeah, I guess that's the question is like right now, code is the best tool we have for rigorously defining the various states of different UI components. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a hard problem. And like basically whether you're talking about Ember or Vue or React, like all of these things are trying to build up as the highest level uh, APIs as possible while still being flexible enough and powerful enough to describe all these things, right? Like that's what a good API is. It's something that constrains you, but it's also flexible enough for and, your problem space. And code is the best way to express that. I mean, right now it is, but again, using this thing, it, it, it very much felt like uh, doesn't need to be one day, or at least parts of our workflow don't need to be. Like when I'm writing a series of event of, of actions to save some data to the server, like that feels like appropriate use of code for sure. Visual design, you know, we talk about declarative coding a lot. Right. What's the best declaration of what this UI component looks like? It's what it actually looks like. Right. And at that point, Ember is really an implementation detail of the design of my application, right? Mm -hmm. So if I give you a prototype and, you know, there's folks helping us out code on this, right? So from my perspective, I'm helping design the product and making sure the flows align with the business goals for our client. And then we're going to have some folks help us code. But from my perspective, I don't even care. Of course, I care. It's an Ember app, and I'm going to look at the code. Right, right. But but the, the components are black box. Exactly. As long as they, they take this input, they render in this state, you're happy. Exactly. Yeah, of course, if you opened it up and there was a thousand lines of right. a component, you'd right. be upset. But right. Yes. But really, it's an implementation detail if you think about it. So it just had me thinking, you know, from with the kind of product designer hat on, it's like, this stuff is really important to get right. I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, who cares? Um, 
how you build something if what you're building is wrong to begin with. And so um, tools like this that make it faster to figure out what you should be building and making sure it's aligned with the goals of whoever you're building it for, I really, really like those. Yeah, it would be awesome if, if these UI tools, um, they had a way to, to get UI developers into them. Yeah. So I think the symbol is really powerful yeah. because I already think yes. of things as components. So when I see a sketch symbol, uh, I made a few today mm-hmm. and I didn't even have to think. I just made a few. You already had a reference yeah. point component, basically. Yeah. And so I'm already thinking at that level. So I think the more the tools can make it easy for, for us developers to get into them, you know, take something like Photoshop. Right. There's no chance right. of me doing anything. In right. Photoshop. Exactly. So, but Sketch actually is making Sketch it Sketch is easy like a tool to for design, building digital products. And it has all these concepts that you're already familiar with yep. as a UI developer. Yep. So I also like the thought that these tools can help with constraints something else we talk a lot about and the idea that if you're in a visual design tool it could point out things like you know good typographic choices or use of white space or repetition of patterns things like that so that when you go to build something it's almost like you can start off with a template like in sketch when you go to build if you create a new ios artboard you you have like a kit of ui components from apple's sdk basically that you can just stitched together to make an interface. So if you're making something more custom for the web, you can imagine the tool being smart about that and helping you and, and kind of drawing some constraints for you. Mm-hmm. So I really like that idea, you know, choosing your colors. Again, not just having an entire color palette available, but something, some of those lessons that we've learned from development, things that make developing products more scalable and maintainable over time, embedding those constraints in a tool like this. Absolutely. It's like super exciting to me. I mean, the worst the worst thing you can do in a design tool is let someone like me just drag and drop things around. Right. Because everything, there's going to be 20 pixels here, yeah. 18 <laughs> pixels here. Three it's versions a, of green. I mean, yeah. we're all, it's all guilty of that, right? So again, like the more help we can get in this area, the better. Yep. So. Cool. Very yeah. cool. So uh, let's see. Last week I was, uh, I was working on Ember app and we were, uh, we're just buttoning up some stuff. And there's a few issues on uh, Internet Explorer 11. And, you know, like most, um, I shouldn't even say like most, uh, you and I, you and I, (laughs) you and I and the people that we work with all develop on Mac. Yeah. Uh, And we all use Chrome. I guess you use Safari, but everyone else uses Chrome. Uh, When we see your browser judgments elsewhere, please. When we see, you know, like UI bugs, we're kind of all seeing it in Chrome. We get yeah. a fix for Chrome. And then sort of like when we get ready to release the product, we're kind of like, okay, let's go check and make sure it works in Firefox and Internet Explorer. Right. And we're not doing anything too too crazy. Um, we're using, you know, web standards and all this stuff that we expect to work. So we know that maybe some tweaking is needed. Maybe there's like one or two like... WebKit prefixes we need to get rendering right in Safari, but for the most part, mm-hmm. it's going to work in all these browsers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I was doing last week, is I was buttoning up a bunch of CSS and HTML bugs in, in Internet Explorer 11. Uh, and I started running, there's like uh, these Windows uh, virtual machines you can get. Um, you install them on your computer, you open them with VirtualBox, and it gives you IE 11. Uh, and Do you, you have can, to boot into them? You don't boot into them. You, you run them from you OS run X. Them, you run them from OS X. They're slow. They're, they're, you know, you have to install these like guest edition tools on them to get them working. The development experience, it's fine. It's fine if you want to to go and just be like, oh, is the site working? Yep, it works. They're, they're perfect for that. Yeah. If you like... Go to the site, it doesn't look right, and you don't know why it doesn't look right, yeah. the experience is pretty awful. Yeah. You're like all tabbing into this VM, doing stuff in there, all tabbing out, trying right. to fix it in your development environment. It's just brutal. Right. Um, so this is where I was. But you can visit week. your local Ember server from Mac in this environment. In this environment. Yes, so that's correct. pretty cool because you can try different things and it will reload. Yes. Yeah. So yep. that's nice. Yep. It's just you're not working in a complete high fidelity environment where you have responsive access to dev tools and all that stuff. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole bunch of like, there are these virtual box integration things that try to smooth over that. It, 
but just this is not something you want to spend your day doing. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to speed this process up. Yeah. And I was exploring options for okay, how how is someone that 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 only uses a Mac, how do they develop on Windows? Yeah, if they had to deal with this on a day to day basis. Yeah, and I think it's good. Like I think it's that you know we as Ember developers should make sure that our apps work in in Microsoft browsers. Yeah. Uh, so the first thought was buy a Windows computer. Yeah. Just just buy a nice uh, the Surface Book. Um, have it in the office. Have it in the office. It has specs that are comparable to the MacBook uh, Pro, so you can get these things with sixteen gigs of RAM and, and all these goodies. Um, and they're they're pretty they're modern. They're like USB C, all this great stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is they're expensive. Mm-hmm. So for a computer that I'm going to use, you know, once every two months, right? I don't really want to spend twenty five hundred, three thousand dollars for it. Uh, so then thought two was look at some way to like boot into Windows from my Mac. Uh, so so still be able to use all the hardware on my Mac, have like a fast computer, uh, use like Parallels or Boot Camp, uh, and install Windows on my my machine. Mm-hmm. And then I found the this third option that was it's called Amazon Workspaces. And they give you a, uh, a virtual machine that has Windows 10 installed on it. And they give you this, this software that you use to log into it. So it's this little client. You log into it and your machine just pops up. Do you think there's someone at Amazon who's sitting there setting these things up for everyone? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm just, I do. I'm, I'm having a flashback <laughs> to one of my first jobs where we had all these virtual machines. That, that we were managing them. So they were just real. It was a server room. <laughs> <laughs> and then there'd be a like there'd be an emergency, and we all we literally run back there and have yeah. SSH into the and it's like oh it's that one you know? <laughs> nice <laughs> it's true so this is it's like not that have, long ago <laughs> <laughs> you have this client you log in you see the that window <laughs> you see the window set up it's that one over there <laughs> it's the red one it's blinking <laughs> oh it has something to do with the smoke that's coming yeah. out of it. <laughs> That's a Windows machine. Smoke always comes out of it. Right, exactly. Um, so, so you can you can log in. Uh, it's fast. These things are like this. The one that we're using uh, is 16 gigs of memory. It has like four or eight CPUs, so it feels fast. It's still over the network, so it's a little laggy. But there's right. there's some like optimizations they do. It's so, not going to take forever to boot things. No, no, not just at the, all. Just the, the bandwidth. It's the latency. Yeah, that's latency. The, the... Yep. Um, the nice thing is you pay per the minute. So, so me and the other developer I'm working with on this project, we each have one, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like I had to go out and buy two laptops. Right. And right. both of us didn't figure out how to install Windows on our computer. We right. just both have these environments. You can run Ember CLI on these things. Mm. So. So you do get that that Windows development experience, and we've we've talked about this before. It's like when we make Ember add-ons. Yeah, because we have add-ons that we found out at very convenient times <laughs> that they did not work in Windows. So this gives you that that Ember developer experience on Windows. So it it also gives you IE, but you can develop on on Windows. That's awesome. What's it called again? Amazon Workspaces. And so this is how you what you would recommend. Absolutely. Like if we need, if we wanted to see what the experience of using Tailwind is like from the ground up on a Windows machine, I, yes. you would do this. Yeah, absolutely. When I when I'm done, I just close the little client. Yep. The billing stops, yep. so I'm not being charged. And then the next day, when I need to log in, I reopen the client, and it just opens up, and my desktop is still there, untouched. So it's stable. So yeah. Yep. Yep, that's I see, awesome. I see my, you know, my editor still. That's open. really awesome. You, yeah. So you were like installing Atom and everything. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's <laughs> it's funny. The Windows, um, I might not be understanding how to best set up a Windows development environment, but it's very on a Mac. You're, you know, you brew install everything. Yeah. On Windows, I need to get Node.js installed. I go to the Node.js website. I download like a Node.js installer. I see. I click through this installer. It's very. I don't know. I feel like I might be missing something here. I feel like there's a better way to properly set up a, a Windows environment. Because it's not, doesn't feel like that normal streamlined, reproducible way you're used to exactly. doing it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But it's still, it's still, this is, I'm so happy I found this. Yeah. Uh, compared to all the other ways I was looking at 
developing on Windows. Yeah. Now, if you could snap your fingers and cost wasn't an issue, it'd still be nice to have a dedicated a machine like in the office, let's say. Or is actually this even preferred to that? Um, if cost isn't an issue, yeah, I'll probably have a machine in the office, yeah. right? Because that's what this is. This yeah. is a remote yeah. remote machine. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if it was in the office next to me, that'd be pretty cool. But then you wouldn't be able to make friends with Carl, the guy who's running your managing your server <laughs> right. at Amazon. I, I, I call Carl and I'm like, press the A key. Yeah. No, the other the other A key. I'm gonna need this in the, about an hour. Could you get it ready for yeah. me? I'll buy you coffee. <laughs> well, that's really cool. And is now what is there a way to have add-ons run tests in these things automatically? I don't know about these things specifically. Yeah. I think these are made for like their workspaces for yeah. like your employees to log on and, and kind of have an environment set up for them. Um, there are CI systems that do run tests in Windows. I think I think when you open a pull request to Ember CLI, I think there is a, a webhook that runs stuff in Windows. Oh, wow. So I, I, I think there are platforms out there. If that's what you want, I think yeah. there are platforms out there that support that. Nice. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. I know Windows support number has gotten better over the years. I know it's still not primarily. I, I don't. So I don't think it's good. Okay. Um, I know there are tricks you can do. Like you can install this this uh, Bash Windows, the Windows Linux subshell system. Okay. And that supposedly speed, speeds things up. So you like open command prompt and you, you have a, a Ubuntu instance backing it. Mm-hmm. Um, on the Windows version that I'm using, I don't have access to that. Mm. So it's one version behind when they released, uh, when Microsoft released this feature. Mm. And then uh, folks that we work with, um, they have older Windows versions as well. So they don't have access to this. And it's- It's a it's, worse experience. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it takes a while to, it takes a minute or two to run Ember CLI and the live reload is not as fast. and. Um, the documentation out there is you just you kind of poke around and and try things out and see if they work. So right. it's not you can tell that tools like Ember CLI are, are made for these Linux and Mac environments. Right. Um, so yeah. Right. But that's good to know though. And um, yeah, I think I think automation is the answer in terms of helping broaden support for things like add-ons that people like you and I write because. You know, it's really easy for us to be in our little worlds. And if we're not working with people who are using Windows, I mean, of course, we can make deliberate effort to do this and and we should. But it's I think the better answer is to make it easy and automatic. So people won't have to make that choice. You want, you want fast feedback. Yes. 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 So, yes. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. Also, last week I was. Uh, there's a little story here. <laughs> Does it involve a broken deploy? <laughs> yeah. Broken build. Broken build. Not broken deploy. Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, you know. Um, when I break things, I just like to go bigger. You go all the way. Yeah. yeah. See, I'm, I'm working myself up. <laughs> so, uh, a You'll few, get there one day. Yeah. Uh, a few, I don't know, weeks ago, I opened a, a pull request to, um, to a number add-on to fix a bug that we were experiencing in our app. Um, and the pull request fixed it. And it wasn't ready to be merged. Um, this is like a big Ember project with lots of movement going on. So we couldn't just merge it. Uh, so what happened was I, in the package.json file, um, just linked to my branch. So that we were getting my bug fix in the app. Everything worked. And your branch was on GitHub. On GitHub, yeah. Right. Uh, so then last week, um, I was, was, we got this. If we were in front of a live class right now. I would ask students, what do you think happened next? Yeah. <laughs> See if anyone can guess where this is going. <laughs> so last week, we were ready to merge my pull request to, this was in Ember Data. So we were ready to merge uh, this bug fix into Ember Data. Uh-huh. Um, but it had been a few weeks. Uh-huh. So um, we wanted to rebrace, rebase my branch uh-huh. and then just get a nice clean merge into Ember Data. Super easy. Uh-huh. Did that in about five minutes. Uh-huh. Pushed my code back up to GitHub, rebased, merged into Ember Data. Everyone's happy. Yep. Uh, and then a few hours later, I get a message that, hey, the app won't build. 
and this is because uh, my <laughs> the we were referencing a branch. Uh, we were referencing a branch in a SHA, a specific SHA. I found this is better with NPM to ref reference specific SHAs. Okay. Uh, if you reference branches, it's it's easy to get two people to get two installs. Okay. Uh, so we're referencing a specific SHA. So you can I do rebased. like Ryan Toast slash Ember Data hash. Exactly. What? SHA. SHA. Okay, but the SHA. Okay, so the SHA. So you actually weren't referencing a branch. You were you were represent you were referencing a SHA. That I forget to be not in master. I forget in this case. I think in this case we were referencing the SHA. Okay. Um, okay. I'm fuzzy on the details, okay. but yeah, I think we were were referencing the SHA because I did a rebase and just pushed my code back up to GitHub. So the that rebase SHA disappeared. Was a, yeah yeah, and then so now. <laughs> So that's the important point that the Shah the Shah disappears disappeared. You basically rewrote history, yeah, because you did a rebase and then pushed, yeah, force pushed, push with lease, but that's a force push. Yeah, sounds you, nicer. <laughs> yes, force rewrote push. rewrote history. Rewrote is history. Yes, right, yep. right. So um, yeah, I think everyone. Every, if you've been using Git for a couple of years, that's what you do. You've probably someone has done this or a coworker. You've done this. Someone you know has done this. It happens. Right. Uh, so now I didn't know what to do to yeah. fix this. Because like the, now it had been a few weeks of Ember data development. And so you didn't know. So like did I just point at my latest right. new SHA? But then that has like the last few weeks of all this. Right. So there is a SHA at this point in master that contains your fix. But it also contains it a bunch contains of other commits. It three other weeks yeah. worth of Or maybe it was like six other weeks worth of right. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right. So is that going to work in this app? Like, right. is I going to introduce some other bug? Right. I, I didn't know what to do here. And well, you didn't necessarily were in a position where you had time to make sure it worked with that shot. Yeah, no. Someone was trying to build the app. Right. Someone was trying to build the app. They don't, yeah. yeah. So uh, the... So what did you do? What we did is we we pointed at at the master version of Ember Data right. at that point. And, and luckily that ended up working. Right. It had only been a few weeks. Imagine right. if it had been six nine months, months right. six months. Yeah, it would have probably not worked. Right. Uh, so my question was like, given that I'm going to do this, I'm going to need to do PRs, fixes. Yeah, you're going to be in a spot. It's reasonable to expect you're going to be in a spot where you don't want to be blocked by a project that you might not even own or run. And all you need is a fix, and you're reasonably confident your fix is going to end up in master at some point, but you don't want to get blocked. So what do you do? Yeah, what do you do there? So, um, so what do you what do you do there? So, uh, what I've done in the past is to use git tag, and what git tag does when you create a tag, which normally I would only do if I was like developing an add-on and bumping the version. Because the way when you run, you know, npm version, it changes a version number in package JSON, and then it creates a git tag, and those are usually called like v 0.1.1, v 0.1.2. That integrates with GitHub's whole release system. That's how it works. But it turns out that tags are also immutable references in their tree issues or whatever they call them in Git storage. And so if you ever create a tag on a SHA, that SHA becomes an immutable reference in the Git repository for all time, even if that SHA was part of a branch that you erase. So so that allows me to still rebase, but I can still reference this tag. It's like Exactly. So you rebase your branch. So if you were to if you were to get rebase on your branch um, and then git log, you wouldn't see that SHA anymore in the branch's history. And that SHA, I don't even think that SHA would end up in master, right? Because it's not going to be in branch. And when you move the tip into master, it's not going to be there, but it is in your repository. And then when I'm in over in my application in the package.json, how do I reference the tag? So you how can do... either use the SHA, which will still exist, because that is the immutable reference. I mean, that's the identifier. Or you can use the name of the tag, because when you create a tag, you have to give it a name. That's okay. unique. So that's why you can't have two tags that are like v1.0.0 or whatever. Um, now, I guess you could... I don't know if you can delete tags. I've never deleted a tag before. I think you can do anything you want with <laughs> Git. So, um, but yes, that's the main the main guard is what you described, which is branches get changed and deleted all the time. I mean, even if you, yeah, they get deleted all the time and changed, 
and um, those shots can go uh, missing when they get rebased. So I think that's the way you want to do it. Um, I mean, do I do this every time I reference non-master, non-version stuff? No. You know, I, I, I reference branches, which is not safe, because those can get deleted. Um, or SHAs, like you said, is probably a little more safe. Um, tag's not a bad idea if it's going to be more than a week or two. That's the thing. Um, well, I knew. I mean, this was a, a PR at Ember Data. I right. It's right. a couple weeks. It could take a while. Yeah. Right. Something like that. A tag is like, why not? And just make it a throwaway name. Something that makes sense to you, but also is not, again, it's not as official as like a version or something like that. It's just a fix. So, yeah, I think that's that's a good, that's a cool, good tool to have in your back pocket. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I, I yeah, I think I will do this next time just to, to go through the process. You don't so want anyone else to be in a position where um, you're sleeping and they can't build the app. Yeah, because of something silly like you rebased this. Or... Right. Also, too, like the. <laughs> well, what if the, the the maintainer of the project could also choose to like fix conflicts, and then they could create a squash commit, or they could rebase it themselves through the interface, which could destroy right. your commit. Right. So. Uh, well, well, they. My commit was on my oh, repo. Okay. That's a uh, fork, uh, so if you so, so they, they something they could do wouldn't affect your fork because right. you're the owner of that. Right. So I was thinking it's like oh it's linked to my name on GitHub. I own this, right. but I rebased it. Right, right. The other That's the, where a tag makes a ton of sense. The really nasty thing about this was that uh, we didn't notice this right when it happened because we already had all of our node modules installed yeah. and all set up. So it was someone new that was trying to yes. build the project that, that ran into this. And I think we had also, you know, we did a cache clear on CI. Yeah. And we immediately saw it. Yeah. That's, that's, well, caching is one of the hard problems. <laughs> yeah, one of the hard problems. It's funny how often that comes up, right? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Right. So we've got some uh, questions from the community here. Um, and so let's, let's run through these before we finish out this episode. First one is from Martin in Slack. Uh, he asked, with the latest router service, it's possible to transition to another page from everywhere in the code. Before, we created specific actions in the route just to transition to another page. Is transitioning to other pages from inside components considered a bad practice, or is it totally fine? My coworkers feel it's dirty to transition from inside components. Do you have any guidelines when and where to transition with the new service? Uh, my short answer here is go ahead and transition from anywhere. I think it's, it's perfectly fine. Um, my long answer, is that so i was working on a component uh last week and this is kind of like cemented this this so when i saw that question i got really excited mm -hmm. so i was working on a component and the component had configuration for you the component was like a form with a bunch of buttons and when you click the save button the the action was different depending on what page you were on in the application so this component was reused on multiple pages uh, so we would configure that. So we would pass in an on save action. Right. It's like data down actions up. This right. is the, the actions up part of it. Uh, if you click the cancel button, it was always the same thing. It would always transition to the home page. Mm -hmm. And so I was passing in this on save action. And then I was just, you know, I was in there looking at this code and I passed in on cancel action. Mm -hmm. And I used exactly what, what Martin's describing an action in the, the controller that did the transition. And I sort of realized, like, after putting this component on multiple pages, I was like, okay, this is always the same. So why am I making it configurable? Mm -hmm. But then there was, like, another thing is I don't want other developers to see on cancel because that's going to signal to them that they can provide their own on cancel action. But the, like, the business rules. The proper way to use this UI part, piece of the UI, the business is for that button said, to go to the home. The business rule said anytime, anywhere the person can't, clicks the, the cancel button, it should go to the home page. Right. So, so you don't want other developers to see an on cancel thing because that sends them a signal saying, hey, this allows you to do different things on cancel. Right. Uh, so so I, I got rid of the on cancel. I injected the router service into yep. this component and I made an action inside the component. And when you click the uh, yeah. That cancel button, the component did the transition. And yeah, it feels weird. It feels like you have this nice, tight, little component. And then all of a sudden, it's like, 
boom, reaching in the router, moving the page. But I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. I think that is the right design. I mean, we went through this with the Ember Data Store as well, right? Yes. Where we, people felt like that with Ember Data Store, but now it's, now, it's way more common you to see, inject you it. See, yeah, you well, it makes sense. And the, yeah. the, the whole point is to use the thing that makes the most sense. And if you're yeah, passing essentially an argument into a function that's never configured, that's a problem right there. This also goes back to, you know, we had Alex on the podcast last week and we were talking about how there's this push for Ember's magic bits to be able to decompose more nicely and for us to have access to them. And when we have things like this in our apps where we need different parts that don't fit nicely into Ember's kind of happy path, we shouldn't have to start from scratch on our own, right? We should just be, and that's kind of the router service, right? Like before the router service was exposed, you either use it in the way Ember prescribes or you don't. But now that it's exposed, when you need a little more power, you can opt into that extra complexity by injecting the service manually and writing that yourself. And then soon when the rest of that router service is complete, because that was only half of it, right, there's still some stuff that's not exposed, like the current, you know, being able to basically recreate link to using, using stuff from the router service. Um, that's not there yet. So link two is still in that spot where it's all magic or zero magic. Mm -hmm. So you either use link two and you get it working right. Or if you want something that does that yourself, you're basically on your own. Yeah, I think it's we very were, hard to subclass that and make it work right. Yeah, we were in the spot and we used like ref two yes. and a whole bunch. Yes. I mean, we ended up writing a lot of code. Yes, but all you want is something basically like a, a, a yielded component that yields out active state. And they, the that you name. could rebuild. Yes. You could rebuild link two, yes. Exactly. So I think that's in the spirit of Ember these days. I think that that's the direction of the core team. So I think it's okay to transition. Also, you can put a link to in the template of a component. Yes. So components can already transition <laughs> the router. They just do it via a component that they're invoking. I, I really like that you brought up the store because because we we used to think it was like, oh, you shouldn't inject dirty. the store. Yeah, it's dirty to inject the store. And now we're just like, yeah, throw the store in that component. Yes. <laughs> um, and this is, yeah, this, this is how, yeah, exactly. This yeah. is a router service. Yeah. I think it might also be worth just pointing out here um, because we've talked about this. It came up with Alex. It came up over the, a few times over the past few weeks talking about conventions in the Ember community. You know, we have an article on embermap.com called Safety of the Herd where we talk about the power of following conventions. And we're big on that as a value proposition of Ember. But sometimes I think it can be stretched to mean something that we didn't mean it to mean, which is it's not about if you feel like awful in this part of your app but you can't figure out how to do it with embers conventions you know don't feel like you have to just bury yourself in this pit for months um, just because you feel like you're going outside of embers conventions right i mean the the whole point with conventions is that when you first learn ember and this is a great example when you first learn ember and you write a click action on something you have an action like hello world ember link tag action helper um, toggle panel and you write that toggle panel action on your component and your controller. The first thing that someone who has not used like a framework like this especially was true like three years ago is that why don't I have the, the, the argument, the event from the DOM as a parameter to that function, right? Mm -hmm. And there's an answer for that. The answer is that Ember is trying to teach you to use declared state and to toggle things and render from that instead of being imperatively, imperatively doing DOM manipulation. Right, because if you could have that event, you could just read from the DOM. See where the click was. Exactly. Yep. And so what instead, once you learn to pull the state out of the DOM, put it on your component or controller, you're learning Ember. You're learning good patterns that Ember is nudging you towards. That's the convention argument. If you're a professional Ember developer and you're in an app where everything takes an action for no good reason, it's okay to question that and to think about better patterns for that, right? Yeah, and going, going back to the the article, the safety of the herd article, it's not it's not to tell you that you should only be using conventions. It's, it's to tell you that when you use conventions, you're going to have this nice path that other people are walking down. But there are definitely spots, like Ember isn't perfect. There are right. definitely spots you get into where like the conventions just do not work. Right. And yeah, if you're having trouble and a convention isn't working, like using that convention isn't going to make your job easier. So, yeah. So it's time to experiment. It's time, time to, to experiment. Outside. Yeah, time to buckle down and think of some good patterns that work for your app. 
And then that's where a lot of good add-ons come from, right? Things that, because Ember can't be a general framework that solves every single use case for every single application. It gets 80 to 90% of every app. Mm -hmm. And then there's always that five to 10% or whatever that you need to come up with solutions for yourself and hopefully upstream and back into the community. So I just wanted to mention that kind of while we were talking about this. This question is from um, Keystone Lemur on Twitter. Uh, can you use Mirage for other applications as well? For example, Rails apps with the same API dependencies as Ember. So when we first read this, I was like, I don't, what, is, what does this person mean? But um, <clears throat> once we kind of thought about it, we were saying, right, you know, sometimes you write a server that needs to talk to another server in the same way that we write an Ember app that needs to talk to server. And when you use something like Mirage, you are mocking out that as a scene that's a contract that your your Ember app depends on, and Mirage provides you with a fake server. So if I was writing a server that needed to talk to another server, that's kind of the same scene. So shouldn't I be able to use something like Mirage for that? So look at look at you. Okay. So what do you think about that? Well, I mean, well, first I, of all, I, I, I would defer the person that wrote Mirage. So first so. of all, Mirage <laughs> is not designed for that at all. Um, I mean, people can and have used Mirage for things it wasn't designed for. So. Um, it is, a, it is a way to make a HTTP mock server or just pretender, right? These are both things. They're designed to run in the browser and they don't, right now they work in a browser. They don't respond to true HTTP requests. But I think you had something insightful to say. Yeah, I was, I was, I kind of went back to my experience with, okay, I've written Rails apps to talk to other Rails apps mm -hmm. and how, how have I mocked that during tests? Mm -hmm. um, and some apps I've worked on, we use WebMock which is uses like the VCR strategy. So uh, when you run your tests, the first request it makes goes through. So it actually makes a request to that remote server. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it writes the response to a YAML file. And then next time you run your test, the, it just uses a response in the YAML file. And there's folks who do this for their normal Ember apps. Yep. So they don't use something like Pretender or Mirage. They actually just get the real responses from their servers. So this is where I would start um, if I were doing that Rails communication, this is this is where I would start. I also started thinking about sort of what Rails gems have I used that solve this problem that I, I don't feel like I have this problem because if I'm if I'm writing a Rails app and it's talking to Stripe, that's this the same kind of problem. I'm making HTTP requests right. to to a remote app. You're talking to another server, basically. Yeah, I don't own that server, right. but I'm still it's the same class of problem. Right. And uh, for Ruby, Stripe has a, a Stripe mock library, and it gives you it mocks out uh, the Stripe interface. And I think you can pin it to like certain API versions of Stripe, so you know that there's not a, a situation that comes up where you think you're mocking an API and Stripe changes it, and it mm -hmm. turns out your mock it, you have a brittle test mm -hmm. because you're making too many assumptions. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really like that mm -hmm. development experience. So the idea, know, so the idea there is. I'm writing a Ruby uh, gem that lets you integrate with Stripe, and I'm going to provide you with that integration and also a way a, a mocking a mocking integration of yeah. that. And okay. so you're not think you're thinking at the integration point. You're not thinking about the HTTP. Yeah, the fact that it's an HTTP request and response. So let's assume you have unlimited resources, and which is very very rare for yes. <laughs> for developers. But you have unlimited resources, no no time constraints, no pressure. Um, and you have two Rails apps that are yeah. talking to each other, I would say have a gem that manages that communication and then as part of that gem provide the, the mocking layer. Right, so I'm, man, I'm responsible for the company's server in our, in our organization and it maintains a list of all the companies that we work with. And so if you're writing a Rails app that needs that list of companies, you're gonna install a gem that lets you easily talk to my server, but also provides a way to mock. And yeah. so that way I'm responsible for the interfaces and you can treat that as a black box from right. your perspective. So me as an app developer, I, right. I know that I can safely mock out your service right. because you've given me the tools, yep. But the reality is people are writing servers and for internal use and different purposes and end up sharing data. I could use that data in your database over there. And so this is probably where the more, rea more realistic situation is, yeah. right? Yep. And so then it's kind of like I'm consuming this thing and I want to make sure my app works. Really, the burden is on me to test this against the server somehow. And so that's where you can reach for the VCR thing. 
But that also, you know, just like if you're using VCR with your actual server with your Ember app versus something like Mirage or Pretender, where you have more control over setting it up in different states. In VCR land, you can only set it up in the states in which you can put the actual server in before hitting the record button. You don't have the factories. Exactly. You don't have factories. It's not as easy. So there's trade-offs there. Yeah. And, um, you know... I, I, the VCR stuff is is a quick Band-Aid fix. Right. It's it's going to bite you at some point because right. your, your APIs are going to change and right. your VCR isn't going to know about it. Right. There is a future where Mirage ends up serving its request to Ember from the Express server in which Ember C CLI runs. And at that point, you're actually Mirage is actually serving HTTP requests, and you could imagine using it for other purposes. So if I had two Rails servers, I could also spin up a, a Mirage server. Sure. And, yeah. But um, you know, in terms of my idea for priorities for Mirage, it's always been about improving the development experience for Ember developers. But um, yeah, again, like I've said, it's it's does it's. It's the core pieces of Mirage are not tied to Ember, and folks have used it in React projects um, and other projects. And so, um, if you're audacious enough, you could make it do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say, yes, I would want, if I was in an organization with Rails servers talking to each other, I would want to see the kind of stuff we talked about as a solution for that. All right, last question is Can you talk about how to upgrade Ember.js smoothly? I always have trouble bumping our Ember version, mainly I think due to some add-ons, but the error message messages are not that useful. And that comes from Tan Tan Tanians on Twitter. People are so creative with their Twitter names. <laughs> Mine's just Sam Salkoff. Mine's Ryan Teo tweets. Oh, that's pretty so, good. Yeah. That's more clever than I me. think if you're like on a scale of one to ten, you're a one, I'm like a one point two. <laughs> uh, well you you have experience upgrading Ember apps. You've upgraded Ember Map. A whole, you know, five or six times now. Yep. So we want to talk about the fact that Kelly Selden's project, Ember CLI Update, has now become the sanctioned way to update Ember CLI apps, which is awesome. So huge props to Kelly for his work on that. Um, I know it's a lot of effort to get something like that. Something like that is fun to build, to bring it over the finish line and get it in, 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 integrated with the community. Um, is tough, so I really want to call out that because that tool is going to make our lives so much easier. And again, the fact that he dedicated himself to make sure it was going to become part of the ecosystem is really awesome. So props to Kelly for that. Um, and you know, that's kind of still—I think that's still in process of being integrated with all of the guides and all of the tooling. But I think it's pretty far along. Can you outline what that does? So basically, it's an add-on that's—I think it's going to be just included by default now, or maybe be. I'm not sure. I think it's just included by default or part of Ember CLI, but it's basically the way to upgrade Ember apps. And, you know, we have a video on this. Um, and uh, it, basically you just, once you install this thing, it, you know, normally when you upgrade Ember apps, Ember CLI apps, you install a new version globally and you run Ember init and you go through a bunch of diffs with the blueprint generated files. Those diffs aren't smart enough to know, for example, the routes that you've added in your Ember router. So if there's a change in an import statement, it's gonna tell you, but it's also gonna say, oh, all of these routes are not supposed to be here in a brand new Ember 2.16 app. So it's gonna to wanna to delete all the routes you created. Exactly, and so what you do is you end up going through. <laughs> not fun in the uh, upgrade process. <laughs> no, it's not. You end up going through and tweaking those things until the diffs kind of only show your application code. But that's annoying, and this tool is smart about this. So it can mostly just do things automatically. And I mean, every time I've used it, it's worked incredibly well in terms of just you update it, and it just it makes those diffs for you and leaves your application code alone. Um, so that's a huge win right out of the gate. Yeah, I use this on an add-on. Uh, I upgraded an add-on from two eighteen to three point and. It was so easy. Yeah. <laughs> you just run Ember CLI update and it it gives you, it like stages everything as a git commit. Yeah. Then you can just look at it. Yeah. And it's, okay, this looks great. All these packages that I don't even ever have thought about, they're it's, just it's bumping versions. It's unbelievable. That's great. To, wait, so then his, the, the, the real, I think the real trick with this question is the fact that versions and dependencies. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Liquid Fire is an add-on that... Um, really depends on very specific versions of Ember to work with since it uses certain APIs from Ember. Um, 
And so that's always one that we check when we upgrade our apps. Um, and so I think add-ons like that, I can see a future where there's better, they better declare the versions that they work with. And so they would be able to let a tool like Ember CLI update know if they work with the thing you're trying to update to. Mm -hmm. So you have Ember uh, Liquid Fire installed that works with Ember 12 and you go to 2.16 and then it tells you we were able to upgrade this, but now you have these incompatible versions. But we're not there right now today, so that's something that you need to work on yourself, basically. You know, when I've when I've done this a few times, I find it better to just wait a couple months, mm -hmm. and by then everyone's already opened pull requests. Everyone's already done the hard work, right? <laughs> um, seriously, it's it's if I wait a few months, all these add-ons they get these pull requests that make them work with the newest version of Ember. But someone has to has to do that for that to happen yes. too. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it's not you. <laughs> no, it is not me. No, it is. No, I've, it, I've done this like once or twice. Sure, but, it's, but. It's, you have to understand it's a risk. When a, when an Ember version comes out, you, you if you're going to snap upgrade to it, there's going to be bugs in the app and add-ons that authors had never even considered or knew about. I mean, how could they? How could they? Um, but I, I would like to see something that's that's some de some declarative stuff that is at. Metadata that's added to add-ons that tell that lets authors specify which versions they expect of Ember they expect things to work with. Mm. I mean, they could even read that from the Ember try. Um, yeah. Yep. Like if I install, if I upgrade my app, and it could tell me, look, Liquid Fire is working, but its re Ember release um, test run on Travis is failing right now. And that points to what you're trying to upgrade to. That's an allowed failure because of release, but I want to know since I'm upgrading a release. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I think that's, I think that's, there's some signaling there, right? Um, Ember release and Ember beta and Ember canary test runs on Travis is a great way for add-on authors to know if there's some things coming down the pipe that are going to affect their add-on. But they have to look at that and be aware of it. And it would be nice as me as an app developer to know if there's some problem areas there. Right, so that's and pretty. That'd be pretty cool. Some add-ons don't don't have a lot of traffic. They don't get a yeah. lot of pull requests, so they don't necessarily run every night on Travis. Right. So they might just not know. Right. That's true. Um, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts here. Dependencies yeah. are tough, basically. My my advice is still, unless you you absolutely need something, you can usually hold off on upgrading Ember. Yeah. Um, maybe that's a lame answer, but that's yeah. I'm yeah. If you're, I think what you're saying is. If this person or someone in this situation is having feels like they're having a lot of a hard time with regular Ember upgrades, maybe it's because they're jumping the gun and doing them really early. Because our upgrade experience typically with Ember is very smooth, right? Yes. Yeah. So I think that's what you're saying, right? And and it's usually there is some add-on, like there is some cryptic message from an add-on when I'm in doing the upgrade process, and I. The first thing I do is I go to that add-ons GitHub repo and right. I look at the tags and I see a couple new versions. Right. I look at the releases and I see, you know, fix for 2.16 and then I just use that version right. and everything goes goes smoothly. Absolutely. And I, I'm not dismissing the point. I know that upgrading apps is, is hard. It's, it is. It's hard. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, uh, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. And um, be sure to jump into Topic Ember Map on the Ember Community Slack. That's kind of where we hang out during the day and talk with folks about you know our videos and our podcast episodes and guests that people would like to see on the podcast. So if you'd like to interact with us there, be sure to come in. And thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.